Well, would you turn with me tonight to uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, it's the last chapter, but we're not going to finish the book tonight. I'm doing that on purpose just to tease you a little bit. Now, we could cover it, but we're not going to because there's enough important lessons as this book comes to an end that we just don't want to move too quickly in it. The names are gone for the most part. That is, it's not going to be like reading a phone book, like chapter 11 and chapter 12 were all these different hard-to-pronounce names, genealogies, lists of who's who. It is more of the application. Before we begin with the chapter, and we're only going to read 14 of the verses tonight, I want to begin with this. It's called The Story of the Three Little Pastors. One bright sunny day, three little pastors went out in different directions to start their own churches. The first pastor knew that if he would build a beautiful church with poetic, positive sermons, the people would flock to his church. He began construction immediately and soon proved himself right. Every Sunday, people came from all around to hear the positive messages and to feel good about themselves. The pastor was very pleased. The second pastor set out to build his church also, but he wasn't quite as eager to just jump right in like the first one. He thought about it for a while and then decided that the first pastor's idea was good, but needed to add things like daycare during the services and other perks. And that's just what he did. He built his beautiful church with a positive message, plus fun activities for the family. And the people came and the pastor was very pleased. The third pastor wanted to build a church the right way. He studied the plans and he knew the groundwork. After everything was scheduled and ready to go, he began to build his church. It wasn't beautiful like the other two. It was modest, but very structurally sound. He knew that the people liked hearing the uplifting messages at the other churches, but he also knew that it was only part of the message, that more needed to be told. He was going to convey the real truths, even though it might not be popular as the other preaching. He lined up good children's activities and classes. When everything was in place, he opened his doors. Some people came, not as many as he hoped for. For the next few Sundays, the number of people attending dropped off slightly more each week, while the other two churches seemed to keep growing. The pastor was wondering if he missed something or where he went wrong. The pastor was not very pleased. For the next few years, the first pastor was delighted at how his little church had grown. More and more people came each week, eagerly waiting to be fed sweets and reassurances, just like the big plates of cookies and goodies offered after the services. Everyone left happy and content each Sunday. The pastor was very pleased. The second pastor was also very happy about his church's growth. Every week, there were more people than the week before. The main church was getting so full that some of the classrooms had to be eliminated to make room for more seats. The pastor looked around at his tall arches and newly remodeled huge sanctuary and was very pleased. The third pastor kept preaching the truth, but the good news of the gospel, both the good news of the gospel and also living within discipline. The people that were there were sparse but loyal and a strong family. He knew this was what the church should be all about, but he wished he could do more. The pastor looked around at his small church and was a little disappointed, but pleased at the same time. 
On a certain Sunday, a dark, shadowy figure approached the front doors of the first church. With a loud roar, he announced that he was going to huff and puff and blow their church down. The pastor didn't recognize the voice and considered it to be a hoax. So he ignored it and continued preaching his warm, fuzzy platitudes. Then everyone inside heard a huff and a puff, and the walls came down like straw. The congregants scattered like birds, not knowing which way to go. The pastor was not pleased, to say the least. The same thing happened at the second church. The warning was ignored. And then, like the other church, the wooden walls came tumbling down. Most everyone fled. But some of the members stayed to fight the intruder. Realizing that it was too late to organize a game plan, they also ran and caught up with the others. The second pastor was not very pleased. The third pastor stood on the steps of his church watching all of the commotion going on down the street. People were running in every direction and nobody knew what to do. Some of the people were running toward him asking if he could help them. He reassured them that he could and motioned them inside. First, just a handful of people came, then more and more, and then more people came. Three and then four at a time till the whole church was packed as full as it could be. Some of the people standing by the doors turned around and screamed that the wolf was coming up the road toward them. The ushers calmly closed the door and told everyone that they were protected. Everyone heard a muffled huff and puff. A huff and a puff. A huff and a puff. Then all was quiet. And not one brick was moved from its setting. The congregation started singing praises to the Lord. And little by little, the visitors joined in until there was singing. And everyone was singing their praises as loud as they could. Looking out the windows, everyone saw an exhausted and depressed wolf walking down the road, knowing that he was beaten. The pastor looked around at his little brick church that was packed full of praise-filled people and was very, very pleased. Now, Nehemiah was an interesting leader. I don't think most of us would like to have Nehemiah as our pastor. You say, oh no, he sounds like a great guy. Well, now think back a little bit. No, don't get caught up in the, ooh, he was such a great... Keep in mind, this guy was a strong leader. And he came in and he cleaned up shop in Jerusalem. Oh yeah, it was God's temple and God's people were back there. But for all intents and purposes, that building and that city was going downhill. And it wouldn't have been for Nehemiah radically changing things. Eventually, there would have been no hope. You say, oh, I like that kind of a guy. Really? Okay, Look just a little bit ahead. We're going to really read this next week. But look in our chapter, verse 13, chapter 13. Look down at verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews, this is Nehemiah, who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. I just thought I'd show you Nehemiah. 
and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to the sons, or make daughters, or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him. So here's a leader who is willing to point to sin and say, Repent of this sin before God. And he strikes me as a guy who cared more about what God thought about him than what everybody else thought about him. So he was a bold kind of a figure. There are three sections in chapter 13. We're really only going to read one. We're going down to verse 14. The next two sections of the chapter we'll pick up on next week. But it's easy to see these three sections. They're pretty obvious because with each section is an issue, a problem, an activity that he deals with and causes the people of Jerusalem to make serious application of what they have read in the Bible to their lives and holds them accountable for it. And in each of the three sections, it ends with a prayer of Nehemiah. So in verse 14, he prays, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. And then he contends with them over not keeping the Sabbath days, as we'll see. And in verse 22, the second half of the verse, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Then the third section, he deals with their intermarriage. There are marriages that we had already pointed out in these verses. And then he concludes, look at the very last sentence of the last verse. Remember me, O my God, for good. With that, let's get into our section. Verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people... And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the congregation of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all of the mixed multitude from Israel. This is actually very encouraging. They're reading the Bible. And in reading the Bible, they realize, as before, our lives aren't matching up to what we're reading. God, the Holy Spirit, convicted them of sub-spiritual activity. And they said, enough is enough. We're going to change. So whenever you find a person not just reading the Bible and outlining the Bible and underlining the Bible and breaking up in groups and talking about the Bible and singing Bible songs, but actually obeying it, it's very encouraging. And that's what they were doing. The Holy Spirit was working. Now, it says in verse 1, on that day they read from the book of Moses. The question would be, on what day are we talking about? And I guess if you were to follow the first rule of interpretation or hermeneutics, we would say it's obviously the day of the dedication of chapter 12 because it's the first verse of the next chapter and the uh, antecedent has been the day of dedication. And so it says on that day. And so we might say, yeah, it's on that day of dedication. I don't think so. 
It's on some other particular day where Nehemiah was not even around. He didn't show up till verse 6. He's been out of town. In fact, he's been in Persia for a long time. And also something else. In verse 10, he will point out that the Levites have enjoyed no portion of the tithes and offerings that should have been brought into the storehouse of the temple. They weren't supporting the priesthood. They weren't supporting the Levites. But at the dedication, in contrast to that, at the very last verse of chapter 12, notice it says, In the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave the portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron. So, it's not the same day as the dedication. My view is we are now several months, even a few years removed from what we read about last week. The dedication is over. Nehemiah has left town. He's left town. Let me paint the picture. Nehemiah was the governor of Jerusalem for 12 years. You may remember back in the beginning of the book when Nehemiah is back with Artaxerxes over in Persia, in Shushan the palace, and he looks really uh, bedraggled, bummed out. And the king notices that and says, you know, why art thou bummed out? And he says, you know, I've been thinking about what's going on in my hometown in Jerusalem, and the gates are burned with fire. Uh, People are discouraged, and I'd love to go back and build the walls. I'd like to help them. And so the king, it says in chapter 2, The queen sitting next to him asked, how long will your journey be and when will you come back? And so they set a specific time. Twelve years was that time. And after twelve years, he returns back to Persia to serve with Artaxerxes Longimanus in the palace once again. So he's not even in town until we get to verse 6. Where it says, but during all of this, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. Here's my point. The leader has left. He's the governor. He's not the king, but he is the leader that kept everything together. And they had made a commitment. Do you remember chapter 10? They made a covenant and they swore we're going to be separated from the world. We're not going to be like what we used to be like. We're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to do all of these things. How quickly they have forgotten. And now is that tendency toward permissiveness. And it shows us the tendency of the human heart to wander very quickly. You know, there's there's a scripture in the book of Judges as well as Samuel that appears that There was no king in Israel, and every man did what is right in his own eyes. And I've discovered that with nations, with churches, with any organization, the absence of strong leadership makes everybody a leader. And everybody does what is right, what they feel they want to do, and what they kind of thought that is the best approach. Without any cohesion, without any strong leadership, everyone naturally deteriorates. There is a law, and allow me to apply a scientific law to the spiritual world. I believe it works. 
and I'll show you why. The second law of thermodynamics, some of you know, you have a scientific background, you studied it, is called entropy. The second law of thermodynamics is entropy. Entropy states basically that in any closed system, energy is lost over time. Principally, heat energy diminishes and is never recoverable. So that things tend toward decay, not order in a closed system, unless acted upon by an outside force. Well, what is true in the physical realm? By the way, it's always a good argument against evolution. A lot of you who have spoken with people in the scientific world, that's always a good one to bring up and hold their feet to the fire, so to speak, with that one. But what is true in the physical scientific realm is also true in the spiritual realm. There is a principle I'm going to call spiritual entropy. That the tendency of the human heart, unless acted upon by a regular outside force source, the word of God, fellowship, prayer, communion with God, tends to deteriorate. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, I marvel, I marvel that you are so soon turning away from the one who called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel. It's like... I just left you guys, and you are so soon turning from the truth. Then there was also the church at Ephesus. Paul spent three years teaching them. He even declared to them, I have given you, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. It was a vibrant church. Was. Go there today. Oh, you didn't even have to go there today. You could have gone there 30 years after it was started by Paul. And if you would have been there, you would have received a postcard from Jesus from Revelation chapter 2. Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your labor, how you can't stand those who are evil. You test those who say they are apostles and are not. But I have something against you. You have left your first love. See, that's the rule there of entropy. It's true in the spiritual realm. It's true in the social realm like it is true in the physical realm. So, the writer of Hebrews nailed it when he said, Brethren, we ought, chapter 2, Hebrews, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest at any time we drift away from them. It is just the natural tendency to hear truth, to outline truth, to go to Bible study and discuss truth, to take notes, and then forget about it. It's just the tendency in my heart. That's just how I am as a person, a human being. I need that constant interaction, and I need that constant action from God, the Holy Spirit, working on my life. So, the covenant that they originally set in chapter 10 has now deteriorated with this spiritual entropy here. So, verse 4. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest... Let me just stop for a second. Something else came to my mind. I think you'll like this. If Nehemiah isn't around, and he's not, he's not in Jerusalem, and the people have this tendency, like the psalmist said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love... Who initiated the spiritual reform in Jerusalem if Nehemiah wasn't around to do it? There's a good answer to that. We believe that there was a prophet that was ministering at the time of Nehemiah's governorship who stayed in Jerusalem. His name was Malachi. 
And if you don't do it now, but later on, go home tonight and read the first three chapters of Malachi. Read Malachi, basically. And uh, you'll discover, it's a short book, you'll discover that the descriptions of Malachi about the conditions in Jerusalem are virtually identical to the conditions that Nehemiah writes about. And so he, that prophet, is standing up telling them, get back to the word. Get into the Word. This is what God says. The priests are saying this. This is what the Lord says. And so Malachi gave them the Word of God, which makes, if you're interested in this kind of thing, the 13th chapter of Nehemiah, the last writing of the Scripture before the New Testament. It's the last thing written. Nehemiah finished it out. Malachi had already finished his testimony. This is right before the intertestamental period before we get into the New Testament. So, now before this, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles of tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. Did you notice a name that should raise a red flag or should strike you as funny in those verses? Tobiah? Does that ring a bell? Didn't you, don't you remember Tobiah in the beginning of the book? Tobiah was an Ammonite who was in cahoots with Sanballat the Horonite and maybe a few termites, but all of these ites mentioned in chapter 2 of this book This guy, Tobiah, was one of the chief enemies of Nehemiah. Hated him. Wrote letters and said, I'm going to petition the king. You shouldn't be building this temple in Jerusalem. We're going to stop it. We're going to get you. Even threatened to kill some of the people in Jerusalem. This is the guy. The very guy who is the enemy of Nehemiah is now in the temple of God setting up headquarters. All because of an irresponsible leader who let him in, a priest. Now, if Nehemiah would have been around, this never would have happened. He'd have found out about it and said, are you kidding? We don't let Tobiah anywhere close to Jerusalem. But you know the old saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Just like when Moses was away. And he came back down. They have this golden calf. They're dancing before and saying, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Now Nehemiah is away and the people have taken the very enemy of the Jews and put him right in the place of worship in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is gone. He's back in Shushan, the palace, hundreds of miles away to the east. Probably he heard about it. That's why he comes home. Just like he heard about the gates burned with fire in chapter 1, chapter 13. He goes, people are at it again. Um, They've already got this Tobiah, your enemy, in the temple. And so he probably petitioned the king again. 
Can I go back? He goes back again, maybe praying on the way, Lord, intervene. God does intervene by Malachi. He's there on site prophesying. And then verse 7. And I came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Remember, this was a big storeroom. Grain was kept there. Wood was kept there for burning fire for the altar of sacrifice. Uh, It was the place where tithes were collected to maintain support of the priesthood. But Eliashib, the priest, has given this room out sort of like a rental, you know, given it for housing, you know, put wall-to-wall carpet in it, nice little refrigerator for him, a bed. He's got the iPods going. He just decks it out for him. Makes it nice for an enemy. Okay, uh, Nehemiah gets back into town and look at his reaction, verse 8. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all of the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. I love this guy. He goes in the temple, no questions like, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. But No, just where's his room? Just throws it out in front of everybody. Does that remind you of anybody else? Yeah, Jesus, twice in his ministry, once at the beginning in John chapter 2, once at the end, Matthew 21, he goes into the very place of worship of God that had become desecrated by the priests themselves. Again, absence of strong godly leadership. They were selling doves. They were selling sheep at exorbitant prices. It was more expensive to buy an animal in the temple than outside the temple. Should have been the opposite. Made it hard for people to worship. Jesus saw this, took a whip, drove them out of the temple because he was angry. Now, some people look at that and go, whoa, did Jesus have like a bad halo day or something? Why did he do that? Because of love. Please, please don't misunderstand and mistake love for sweet, sappy sentimentality. Love isn't always a hug. Sometimes love is a spank. Ask any parent this. Do you spank your children because I can't wait to spank them. I've always wanted to get even. No, because you don't want them to turn out to be a brat. You love them. So you'll do something that does, in their eyes, put you as a very hateful, vindictive, bad person. But you're willing to put up with it because you love them. So Jesus Christ, out of love, and by the way, Martin Luther called this kind of righteous indignation, he called it the anger of love. Because you know there is a commandment in the Bible to be angry. As a virtue, not a vice. Be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, Paul wrote. So there is a type of anger your anger at angry at people diminishing the glory of God, diminishing the word of God, taking that lightly, and you're willing to step in and do something about it. So Nehemiah was. He didn't care what they thought. He cared what God thought. And I commanded them to cleanse the room, so fumigate the place. I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. So he cleansed that room, cleansed the temple. 
and brought it back to the glory of God. Now, this takes me to uh, a springboard, if you'll allow me. This is what I, that's why I wanted to slow down in this chapter. Because Nehemiah does something that, for most of us Christians in the New Testament era, unfortunately, we read and think, that's odd. That's mean. That's unloving. He shouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't do that. Better read the New Testament, the Gospels again, because he did it twice. But there is an issue I just want to touch on called church discipline. Church discipline. It's a topic, frankly, that isn't taught in most churches. And it's seldom practiced in any churches. It's something that our modern church really knows not much about, nothing really, virtually. And again, most churches that I have known don't practice biblical church discipline. But let me ask you a question. Would you be willing to see your Christian life refined and honed and bettered, even if it meant discipline? I'm not going to ask you to answer that out loud. You just ponder that one. Would you be willing to have your life refined and honed and bettered if it meant discipline? Because though it's a foreign concept for the church today, it is not a foreign concept in both the Old and the New Testament, this concept, this idea of church discipline. You see, one of the marks of a strong, healthy body is the ability to purge out toxins, disease. A body that cannot purge out its own toxins is a diseased, unhealthy, doomed body. And so it is with the church. Paul wrote to the Galatians, If anyone is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Okay, this is how it works normally. For the normal Christian. As a normal Christian, in the scheme of life, You should be judging, I should be judging, we should be judging ourselves. That is, you hear a Bible study, I hear a Bible study, I read a book, I'll hear a Christian broadcast, I'll be talking to a brother and sister, they'll say something and I'll realize there's an area in my life that needs changing. And I judge myself and I bring it before the Lord and I change, I repent, I do something about it. That's normal. Paul said to the Corinthians, if you would judge yourself, you wouldn't be judged. However, Jesus gave us four steps that the church should take if the normal doesn't happen. If the normal doesn't happen, then it's abnormal, subnormal. So if the normal doesn't happen, Joe Christian, Jeannie Christian doesn't judge herself himself. And things go on. The church has to do something about it because it's a body of Christ and a healthy body purges toxins. So Jesus gave us four-step program, a four-step application when that happens. It's in Matthew chapter 18, often quoted, hardly ever practiced. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother, that's a Christian, sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, 
Take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will literally have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed or have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on anything concerning, uh, concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Okay. First step. The normal isn't happening. Sinful activity, unrepentant sinful activity is going on in a brother or sister. Step number one, you confront them privately, one-on-one. If they agree with you, that's what the word confess means. I agree, you're right. That's been wrong. I agree with you. I want to turn from that. You're done. You don't have to take it to step two, three, or four. It's done. You hug, you pray, you go on. And that's wonderful if that happens, but it doesn't always happen. But notice it says you approach the person one-on-one. It doesn't mean you go to three or four other people first and say, would you pray about this for me? Can I counsel with you about this person? I have a burden on my heart. I need to pray if I should go talk to them. No, you don't. Jesus said, go talk to them. You don't have to pray about it if he said, go do it. So don't bring other people into this. Have the guts to go one-on-one and say, you've sinned against me and deal with it. And if they go, you're right, I'm sorry, then it's over. You go no further. It's done. Um, Don't have the time to turn to it, but you might write in the margin of your Bible, Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Beginning around verse 11, Paul talks about how he did this with Peter. He rebuked Peter. Because Peter was duplicitous in the way he treated Jews and Gentiles in eating together. So he even writes about it. He's that open about it. So first one is confront privately. Second, add accountability. That's step number two. If step number one, approaching privately, doesn't work, step number two, add accountability, may work. That's where it says, verse 16, but if he will not hear you, Take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now, you know, that's a text from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 19, there are two texts that talk about two or three witnesses. Here was the idea. Make sure that you have other witnesses so that you don't allow slander to be passed on from one person to another I want to make sure your story's straight, the Lord would say, so you need witnesses with you. So this prevents somebody from saying, you know, so-and-so is blowing it in sin and they won't repent. It takes away the power of one single person, one counselor, one pastor, one usher, one leader. It brings it into a responsible accountability. And it adds a little bit of pressure. So if I go to the person and say, you're blowing it, I don't think I'd say it quite that way. 
And they'd say, uh, well, I don't think you're an idiot, so go away. Then I bring somebody with me, a two or three, who are responsible, mature people. And we all say, you know, we've been observing you. Let's hear this again. And at the conclusion, they may say, Skip, you're wrong. Or they might say, you know what? He's right. You are blowing it. Now, if he listens at that point or she listens, great. I don't have to take it to step three. I've done it privately. I've added accountability. And they've turned. But, verse 17... And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector. Third step, deal with it publicly. Publicly. When is the last time you heard of this happening? You don't hear it much. And uh, uh, I have heard of some churches doing it, albeit in a way that is um, very humiliating. Now, I have done this in our church in Albuquerque on several occasions. Step one, step two, step three. When it came to step one, a person was approached. Step two, a couple of pastors were approached with the person, a counseling session. We prayed about it. They prayed about it and they would weigh it out. And if the person was living in unrepentant outward sin and they didn't want to change, then we took it to DEFCOM four, so to speak, to the next level. And that is, we warn the person. We're going to tell this to our church leadership. All of the pastors, there's about 12 of them at the time, all of our board of directors, and you'll be disfellowshipped. You won't be allowed to come to church here. You say, now, this is a mean process, Skip. This is unloving. Keep in mind who wrote the book. Keep in mind who said those red words. They were the Lord Jesus Christ, who is love incarnate, Right? This is what he said about the church he's going to build. You and I don't have the right to mess with that, but just to do it. And I have seen success story after success story. I'll tell you a couple. I won't mention names. One was a guy who divorced his wife and started flirting with other girls and seducing them. Somebody approached him. He said, I don't care what you say. Two or more were brought, not the band. A group of believers was brought, two or three witnesses. He didn't want to listen to it. He hardened his heart. We told him, you could be disfellowshipped with this. He goes, good, I don't care. We got together. We prayed. We charged him with the sin. We wrote him a letter of disfellowship. It was done to the church. That is not to all four services. It would get kind of messy to do it four times on a Sunday. So we did it in the church leadership with all of the staff and all of the board and all of the lay leadership. That person was not allowed to fellowship at our church, and if we found out he was going to the church down the street, we call the pastor and say, this guy's in sin, don't let him come in. And most of the pastors would say, thank you for telling us that. It was responsible unity in the community. About a year later, got a phone call from this gentleman. I need to talk to you, and I want to talk to your board. And he came to our board and said, gentlemen, thank you for doing that. I repent of my sin. I want to be restored back into fellowship. I won't be attending this fellowship. I just want the freedom from you to fellowship in God's church. And we prayed with him. He wept. There was repentance. There was restoration. And this guy's walking with the Lord today. Case number two, I had a guy on my staff, worked for me, embezzled thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars from the church. I had a choice one, take it to the district attorney, put him in jail. Choice number two, keep it out of the courts, let the church handle it. It's always my option. I hate it when Christians take Christians to church. It's wrong. 
So I said, I'll deal with it in the church. So we got him together, charged him with his sin. He repented of his sin. We then set out a process of restoration of how he was going to counsel every week and how he was going to pay off the debt. It took him about four years to pay off that debt. He handed me the last check four years later, knocked on my door after four years weeping, saying, I'm sorry before the Lord that I did this. Hugged, embraced. Today, he is still in fellowship. Understand the purpose of church discipline isn't to kick people out. It's to win their soul and root them responsibly for years to come in the body of Christ. And I got to tell you, when it's done, it works and it's beautiful. So back to the question. Would you be willing to have your life refined and honed and bettered, even if it meant discipline? Okay. Well, he is. Okay, well, we want to talk to you right after the service. Poke around in your life. No, I'm just kidding. I agree. Thank you. Okay, process number four and step number four before we close is that last section. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Then number four, if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Now, that doesn't mean he is a heathen. And a tax collector doesn't mean he's lost his salvation. It means you as the body of Christ treat him as if he is an unsaved, unrepentant human being. You don't allow them to participate in church activities. Just like you wouldn't say, hey, we're going to have a worship band Sunday morning. None of them know the Lord, but they sing really good. You wouldn't let that happen. We won't let that happen. So you won't let them participate in the church. They're not part of the body until there is repentance. You know, Paul did that. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, said it's actually reported among you that there is a type of a sin that isn't even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. There was an incestuous relationship. And he says, you are proud and glorying and rather you should have mourned He said, I'll tell you what to do next time you're together in the power of the spirit in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, together with my spirit, even though I'm absent, I've already judged as if I was present, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, you deliver him into the realm of Satan, that is the world, apart from the protection and fellowship of the church until there's repentance. You might say Paul was mean. Keep going through the book. You get to 2 Corinthians and he's repented and he writes the church letter number two and says, this guy's sorrowful enough. He's repented enough. He's shed enough tears. Now let him back. And there was restoration in that church. All right. So I was going to finish all the way to verse 14 in Nehemiah chapter 13, but I only made it to verse nine. So we'll finish the chapter next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Uh, We have to really balance out our thinking and think of the totality of Scripture when we describe the word love because Jesus Christ is incarnate love. And the words of incarnate love were sometimes words like, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Sometimes it was, woe unto you hypocrites. At other times it was, neither do I condemn thee, sin no more. So, Lord, help us to be very careful in how we will distribute and define 
what is loving Christianity. May we love one another to put our own selves on the spot in approaching people one-on-one, in getting involved in these kinds of things rather than saying, don't mention my name, I don't want to be a part of it. Lord, help us to live responsibly so that you might continually pour out your blessing and use your obedient children who walk after your ways. Thank you for such hungry hearts and such hungry souls who come every week, who love your word, who love you, love to sing praises, love to hear and apply the truth. Oh Lord, bless their lives in a very unique way and bring comfort and restoration to every area of these lives that are present here in Jesus' name. Amen.